Thank you for listening to season two of Spotless, Breaking the Boundaries of Television. Presented by two media powerhouses, Triple Lift and Advertising Week, Spotless brings you in-depth conversations with the leaders who are driving this evolution. So, you know, listen up. Evolution, we came from monkeys, now we're humans. Who knows where we are next? You're going to learn something on this podcast. As the president of Paramount Television Studios, Nicole Clemens oversees a robust slate of 26 shows currently on air, ordered to series, or in production. In 2020 alone, Nicole oversaw the release of hit shows including Defending Jacob and Home Before Dark on Apple TV+, The Haunting of Bly Manor and 13 Reasons Why on Netflix, Season 2 of Boomerang on BET, and The Alienist Angel of Darkness on TNT. Additionally, and most recently this year, Made for Love debuted on HBO Max in April. Looking ahead, highly anticipated PTVS shows include Station Eleven, also for HBO Max, Flashdance, Grease, Rise of the Pink Ladies, and the recently announced event-limited series on the making of The Godfather, The Offer, all of which are set up on Paramount+. Additionally, this June will see the premiere of Season 2 of Home Before Dark, on Apple TV+. Before running Paramount TV Studios, Nicole was a producer at Anonymous Content, where she set up both film and television projects and served as Executive Vice President and Head of Series Development for FX Networks, where she guided a coveted roster of critically acclaimed original series including Atlanta, Better Things, You're the Worst, Snowfall, and numerous other projects. Nicole also served as partner and head of the Motion Picture Literary Department at ICM Partners for 16 years. Welcome, Nicole. It's so great to have you. Great to be here. It's good to see you, Bo. Yeah, it's great to see you too. Well, first off, I wanted to congratulate you on recently being named amongst the Hollywood Reporter's Women in Entertainment Power 100 list in recognition of being the head of a major Hollywood studio. Now, I know you're not new to this list, but um, how does it feel to be recognized along some really impressive company? Well, it's, it's look, it's, it, I, it's always incredibly flattering. And I think that the, the, the people that I'm honored with are people that I've looked up to for most of my career. So it's, it's, you know, it's a good feeling. For sure. I mean, I, for one, love Michelle Obama. So it's a great list. I mean, of- my mom is always saying, well, wait, what, what number are you? Like, what number were you last year? <laughs> so, yeah. Well, yeah. yeah, I remember it was like five or six years ago, they removed the, uh, the, the rankings. Which I keep trying to explain that. And, you know, it's not landing. So tell us a little bit about when you realized that television and in particular, the, the creation of content was your passion. Well, I look, it goes all the way back to being a latchkey kid and, and coming home and grabbing a gallon of ice cream and sitting about eight inches away from a television and just watching everything. I mean, I feel like I marked some of my childhood by when I was allowed to stay up late enough to watch Fantasy Island, you know? So I've always loved television and content and movies. I, you know, I remember the first movie I saw in theater was Star Wars. I mean, for a premiere, which was just, you know, completely blew my mind and changed my world. I mean, I remember seeing JJ's first Star Wars and literally like when the music came up, starting to cry because like my kids were with me and, you know, so it's, it's been in me forever in terms of TV. You know, it's funny because I I got my start at spelling television. That's where I became an executive and, and at the time wanted to make that transition to film because film was sort of the cool kids table. 
and ended up eventually at ICM where I did both because I was, you know, selling books to film and television and always had a finger in, in both. And then when I became a lit agent, I pulled on a lot of my television relationships to take them into film. And that was when a spec market was really how you broke writers in. And so developed with those television writers, feature scripts. And then, and so I've always sort of gone back and forth. And, um, and as we've seen, the wall between TV and film completely collapsed. And now everybody that was working in television, in film is working in television. I mean, there really isn't, it's hard to distinguish at this point. So yeah, so it's, it's been, that's been great. Awesome. Yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm no question. There's definitely uh, way more runway, um, but ultimately it's just premium content. Exactly. Content is king. That is, yeah. So one of the main reasons I'm so excited to have you on as a guest on Spotless is because of the experience you have across film and television, which we just spoke about, but also as an agent, a development executive, a producer, and now a studio head, you know, at some of the biggest companies in the industry. For some of our listeners who aren't as familiar, can you help them better understand the role that Paramount TV Studios plays in the market today? So as a studio in television, we... We develop and package and sell to a, another distributor and produce the content. So we have shows, for instance, on 13 different outlets. And I'm trying to find a word that covers all of them because you, you, have, you, know, you have premium, you have streaming, you have basic cable. Um, so we have shows on Netflix, Amazon, Apple, Paramount Plus, um, Showtime, all, ac- you know, all across the board. And that's different than, uh, you know, the film studio, which develops, produces and distributes their own content. And then, of course, there are, um, you know, I'm part of Viacom CBS. So we are sister company with CBS Studios, who does what we do. They are largely uh, they also do premium and streaming, but they're also largely in the broadcast space, which for Paramount Television Studios has not been our priority. We've been mainly focused on on streaming and premium. Over recent years, you've had the opportunity to work on some of the biggest, most critically acclaimed shows in the history of television. From Atlanta and Snowfall on FX to 13 Reasons Why on Netflix. When you're considering a new project, what do you look for in a show idea or piece of material, script or otherwise? If you look at the landscape right now, people are very focused on the fact that there are like 500 plus scripted shows. And so you're looking for that idea that can break through. And sometimes that has to do with being IP, having some sort of level of pre-branded awareness, or, and that can be based on a, on a book or an article or a, a film that you're reconceiving in, in the form of a series. But I think you want something that feels authentic to the voice. There's an opportunity now, I think more than ever for authentic voices and representation across a wide range of stories to tell. And so I think authenticity, specificity, noisy, I look for things that subvert people's expectations. People will ask us, what's your brand as a studio? And as a studio, we're selling to multiple outlets. And so our brand is really the experience and the quality of the material that we put out, not a specific genre. Like when you say you think of a particular network's shows and you, you have something comes to mind. But I would say there is a common denominator that runs through our material which is that it's populist literature. No matter how popcorn a show may be, there's still something that we're looking at 
some bottom to it, something that we're saying, because I think there's an incredible opportunity to expose people to different ideas and attitudes and thoughts that they might, <laughs> making it sound like I'm, I'm working for the CIA and I've got like <laughs> hidden messages in there, which is not really what I'm saying, but that the people feel real and that you are subverting people's expectations, whether it's through character or genre or actual production, the filmmaker's view of how they're shooting it. And so I think it's, it's got to break through and that can also happen with original ideas. And I, I feel like that's the lacking area right now um, on our landscape is if you think about it, I'll name Succession, which is one of my favorite shows and it's on HBO is an original idea. And so I'm hopeful that we can find more original ideas that tap into the zeitgeist. I mean, that in comedy, certainly that is the norm, but in drama, it feels like there's been a lack of original ideas getting through. You mentioned Succession. I agree. It's one of the you know most original fun shows. I remember actually watching it and not really getting it at first. I thought it was a little, and then someone mentioned it's actually supposed to be a comedy. And I, you know, I watched like one episode and I went back and watched more. And it's again, one of the most amazing shows. Can you talk a little bit about that and, and how that has maybe changed how you look at some content or scripts or, or projects you're considering? It hasn't changed how I look at material. I think it sets a really great high bar for fantastic. When you talk about specificity and character development, you understand what all of those characters want, what's in the way, who they are. So anytime they're in a scene, it's electric. It's a very clean concept. It's ultimately, it's obviously a thinly veiled Murdoch's. So there's that. But if you didn't know anything about the Murdoch's, it still works because of the family, the tried and true sort of family dynamics and struggle for power. But you know, I found myself when I first saw it and I was like, oh my God, this is so good. It's like sort of weighing everything against it, which I think is good. The way that we approach putting together our shows and, and it might be a little different different than other studios in terms of the, the, the amount that we do this way, but we sort of approach uh, development. We like to, we tend to develop a lot internally and put our shows together and then take it out to the marketplace and say, this is the show we want to make. Do you want to come play? As opposed to, you know, is this what you want? Is this what you want? You know, and having not having a point of view, I think the stronger point of view we can have and we can believe that something is phenomenal and we'll find the right partner. You know, it's kind of like dating. <laughs> I spent a lot of my years going, do you like me? Do you like me? Until I finally got to like, do I like you? <laughs> so, and I think that, you know, it, it puts you in a better position. So we try to do that with everything that we put together. We're not, we're not trying to fill slots. We're trying to do things that we're super excited and passionate about so that we can deliver them at the highest levels. For sure. I mean, I think that's a, a great perspective to have uh, for anyone listening, whether it's regarding dating or trying to sell <laughs> a show. Um, <laughs> so there was a lot of talk last year around how major media companies were going to adapt to like an accelerated uh, shift to streaming brought on by the pandemic. And one of the things that has really been hammered home during all of the recent upfront presentations is a focus on owned and operated streaming platforms. Of course, Viacom CBS with Paramount Plus, which you described a little bit earlier, Fox with Tubi, NBCU with Peacock. It must be nice to have a premium streaming you know, option within the same umbrella of companies to sell to. But can you tell us a little bit about how you've shifted your thinking when determining a home for your content and making sure that it, it gets you know the best opportunity to reach its intended audience. Well, look, first of all, we could not be more excited about Paramount Plus and the um, the focus on 
building out a streaming platform. And it's a, look, it's, as a studio, it's fantastic to have a sister company that is voraciously buying and incredibly committed to scaling. And, you know, we, we have great sister company relationships with Showtime and BET. And so that just continues that. And I think we're certainly not walling up as some other organizations have done. So I think that there's, you know, we're, we are heavily focused on supplying for Paramount Plus and making and supporting that service to, you know, to the best of our ability. But we have so much content that may or may not be right for that. We're also, we have the ability, which I think is fantastic and makes us incredibly desirable as a studio to sell outside. And so, you know, we evaluate each piece of material and, and where it can have the, the best success. Obviously, I think some of the things you saw announced clearly makes sense for Paramount Plus when you're talking about the offer, the making of The Godfather, right? Mm-hmm. The platform is called Paramount Plus, the offer and The Godfather. The Godfather is one of the crown jewels of Paramount. Oh. Um, you know, we are doing Rise of the Pink Ladies, which is a prequel to Greece, which I, again, I think makes perfect sense. We'd originally had that on HBO Max and there was this regime change and Paramount Plus actually wasn't announced at that point. And so it was a great timing. And I, you know, I think it's the synergy there is fantastic. We'll look for all of those opportunities, but I think it's going to be a really formidable platform. Awesome. I mean, something that I have really been fascinated by, especially with this shift to streaming, and I'm sure is, you know, an increasingly important piece for you to consider is international. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I'm curious how important is the international presence of a streamer and what role does that play in your decision making? Look, I think it's super obvious that um, international is where the growth opportunities are. As a studio where we can retain international or some international territories, there's great upside for us because we're able to maximize that. That said, there are deal structures in place with global streamers that also make a lot of sense. So I think the growth for international is going to be great no matter which structure you're in. I also think it's an opportunity to, if you look at the way that content is being consumed now, Narcos was really, really early on where it felt like it was U.S. domestic content made for global, right? Or made for that region, but sort of appealed globally. You look at Lupin right now and how that's playing, right? So there's just so much more in the same way that originally the wall between film and TV came down. I feel like the globalization of our world, maybe it's accelerated in the pandemic because we're all just looking at screens and content is coming in and, you know, we're able to consume more content. And so you're looking in different places and people are more comfortable with subtitles and people are dying and hungry for stories about people that they don't maybe know as much about and cultures that they don't know as much about. Right. So I think it's just, it's ripe on every angle for expansion. Yeah, no, definitely. And I, I, again, just think it's extremely fascinating. I remember traveling internationally and seeing on Netflix that Breaking Bad was marketed as an original and, you know, Hulu, for example, didn't have an international presence, but obviously, you know, leaned on a lot of independent studios for the content. But when they looked to go international, Handmaid's Tale was already distributed to other places. So, you know, I'm, I'm really interested to see how all that plays out. So last year, you told Variety that broadcast TV is not your bread and butter, but you also hinted that the licensing models favored by some major streamers like Netflix and Amazon caps the upside because Mm -hmm. studios know from the start what level of profit will be realized. Can you tell our listeners a little bit more about this particular piece and how monetizing your content or structuring these deals is starting to look different in the future? Paramount Television Studios 
when it became a studio about six plus years ago, was sort of came up with the rise of streaming. And so that was, that was the conception. It originally started as a way to take titles into streaming and there was low risk as a studio that was an upstart. Obviously, I came aboard three years ago. We've scaled and we've expanded our business model and we've looked for opportunities for more margin. And, you know, the way to have more margin is to own your content and have, you know, the ability to maximize it in the marketplace, international included. So there were deficit financing models that made sense, even in that streaming world. The broadcast, certainly there was a brass ring out there when you hit it, but you have to take so many shots and in order to maybe win that brass ring and also being an outside studio for broadcast made it less attractive for us. So we've taken a few very specific targeted shots, but that's not our bread and butter. We're not looking to have like five pilots picked up in a, in a you know, in development or selling in a season. And that, that makes sense. I think our portfolio is more spread amongst cost plus deals, streamer deals where there is a deficit finance model, basic cable deals. And it's also just been essentially where our taste goes towards. And I think that our team is best suited for that type of content. Uh, kind of what I'm gathering is ultimately you're really driven by where the content fits the best. There's so few one size fits all shows. They exist every once in a while, but for the most part, there are not one size fits all shows. And so your, your show will have a couple of buyers that it just feels like the right seat, sweet spot. So when you're in a competitive situation and you're looking at where should we put our show, the factors are passion. Uh, what else is on the slate, financial models, all of those factors come into play. And so to your point, yes, you're really looking for the best home, but you're taking all those factors, which are different at every single place and weighing them up. You're never in apples and apples. It's always apples, oranges, peaches, <laughs> and, and ultimately like making, you know, making the best decision for your show for it to have the longest run. So it sounds like you work in a farmer's market. Um, <laughs> I do. Beyond the checks and balances, you know, I'd love to get your opinion on what success looks like today from a creator standpoint and a consumer standpoint, you know, with the influx of all these streaming options, you know, how would you say the definition of a hit has changed over the past five to 10 years? Well, I think the definition of a hit is different for every outlet and those metrics change. As a studio, the definition of a hit for us would be renewals. And, you know, if we own the international or parts of the international, that monetization of that avenue. But for, for some people, it's for subscribers. For some people, it's advertising revenue. It just, it just depends. So I think there's also, there's also critical success. There's award success. There's, you know, all of those various metrics that depend again on like what kind of, what kind of show it is. We're not making the decision to keep our programming on the air. The, you know, the outlets are. So it's a little different from our perspective. You know, I'm always as an outsider now, very curious how, that's changed, particularly when it comes to viewership specifically, because ultimately it's it's the measurement metrics today for the streamers. And I, you know, I appreciate you you run a studio, but I would imagine for these streamers, it's a longer tailed view of a project where sometimes, you know, I came across a show recently that was three years old and I never heard of, you know, but now obsessed with it. And there's countless stories like that. So I, I think it's a, a fun challenge for those um, those folks to uh, try and navigate. Absolutely. And look, there's no unified measurement across the streamers because each one looks at, they measure it differently. How the impressions 
completion ratio and the import for that, you know, the importance that they put on all of those variables is different to every streamer. So it's super interesting. I'd love to look behind the curtain of each one, but. <laughs> so staying on the topic of content and, and projects that you're working on, you know, you mentioned a couple of projects earlier, the couple of prequel series, it sounded like, are there any projects, additional ones that you're working on that you're super excited about? beyond those who you mentioned and or are there any projects that you're anxiously waiting for the world to see? Uh, yeah, there are. In fact, we're super anxious to get so much out that was shut down during the pandemic. So it's been delayed. Um, one of those was Patrick Somerville's adaptation of Emily St. John Mandel's book Station Eleven uh, for HBO Max. And that's Hemish Patel and Mackenzie Davis starring. And it's prescient because it's about a post-pandemic world and it's super hopeful and great. I'm excited for everyone to see that. We've got Jack Ryan season three in production right now, which I know everybody's been waiting a long time to see. We've got a second season of Home Before Dark on Apple and we've got Shantaram, which just went into production this week with Charlie Hunnam for Apple. We've got, I'm, I mean, we mentioned it before, before, but I am so excited about the offer, which is Dexter Fletcher from Rocketman directing the making of The Godfather through Al Ruddy's story. And it's just fantastic. Michael Tolkien and uh, Nikki Toscano wrote it and it's it's super, super good. And it's, you know, it's an original. And then we've got Grease, Rise of Pink Ladies on Paramount+. Plus. Uh, we have some things in development that I have high hopes for, like The Italian Job and Fatal Attraction there. And, and like really good, you know, I was the first to feel like, gosh, you know, especially when we were at FX and they said, we're going to do Fargo. And I was like, you can't remake something. But when you, you know, I think we've learned that there's a way to do it where there's a way to honor the original material, but just to have like a brand new show. So much good stuff. I don't know if you want me to keep going. No, I mean, you, uh, <laughs> no, no question, really busy. And I'm, I can only imagine the excitement you have to, to kind of get back to, you know, somewhat normal, quote unquote. But, you know, I remember reading an interview of yours last May and so just after everything kind of happened and, and you were like, I've shut down productions before. Like I've had to, you know, things have happened, but I've never had to go and shut down everything at once. And so one, I can't even imagine what that was like, but again, can appreciate how, uh, how happy it must feel to again, be back to normal. It was an amazing exercise and I could not be more proud of my team who literally like, I mean, you could not have, obviously nobody predicted this, but the, the way that we were able to do that and then also to come back up in production with COVID protocols and all of the, you know, everything that went into restarting this machine also pretty much all at once was, an, it was an undertaking and, and they just, they blow me away every day. My creative and my production all the way across the board, BA, I feel so lucky to, to, ha to work with the people that I do. Shifting gears slightly, last year gave you know a rise to an increase in, in social awareness. And one of the many parts of your career that I've always admired and respected tremendously is the fact that you ran the motion picture lit department at one of the biggest talent agencies in the world. I've always really admired that. And, and it's something I've, I've even you know just spoken about in general to people whenever I talk about my time working with you. And as a studio head, how would you describe your responsibility to set an example to young women entering the industry today, but also reflecting the times and the, the content you create? Well, I think we have a, a massive responsibility to make sure that, that we're representing underrepresented voices and stories, and we have the platform to do that. I remember, I remember when I was a young agent, actually, I was in my 20s, and I went to a, a, a salon that was hosted 
by an older agent who had great relationships in the in politics and they had i think i can't remember if it was the former secretary of state under clinton but it was this incredibly inspiring talk and i and i remember thinking oh my god i went into the wrong field i'm not making a difference i'm making at the time television and film and you know this is i should have been in i want to make a difference and and i went up to this this um politician and said that and they said no you actually have more influence than we could have ever have because of storytelling and i think that you know the thing about you can only create empathy when you walk in someone's shoes and telling stories creates that opportunity and i think the opportunity we have to you know to tell stories that haven't been told but also to make sure that we are bringing underrepresented voices and points of view into the workforce both behind the camera in front of the camera in our exec ranks and everywhere i think only enriches that ability. And I think it's absolutely mandatory. We're being incredibly intentional about it. And I I could not be more excited about what that yields in terms of great stories and great content and great business. Thank you so much for making the time. Again, I really, really appreciate, you know, having you on, given your point of view, and I can't wait to see some of the upcoming shows. Thank you, Vote. So good to see you. It's really fun to be here and I appreciate it. 